But I am Gary Huggins, and I am executive director of the Commission on No Child Left Behind at the Aspen Institute. And uh, this morning we're here to talk about effective education philanthropy and the critical role that these folks and others play at this sort of very timely and important moment for education reform. Um, I think we all know the challenges. We have unacceptable achievement gaps uh, that continue. Even our high performers uh, don't compare very well with their peers around the world. Uh, and our poor performance in general affects all sectors of American life. Uh, on the plus side, uh, we have more data on student performance than we've ever had before that's shining an important light on those achievement gaps. And there's no more invisible children, that we really are having an honest conversation about what's going on out there and what needs to be changed. Uh, we have more entrepreneurs and change agents than we've ever had before in education, uh, in an enterprise that's changed very little in over 100 years. Uh, and we have an education reform community that's very diverse, uh, the civil rights world, the business community, lots of different players coming together and beginning to look and feel like a movement at this important moment of opportunity, which I think is, is exciting as well. Um, but as we talk about education philanthropy and how funders play to their strengths, we want to talk mostly this morning about how do we maximize and measure their impact uh, on student achievement in particular, and how do we coordinate efforts, as, again, as they play to their strengths uh, to reach common goals. Uh, we have a great panel here um, that covers the waterfront on education philanthropy, everything from affecting policy at the national, state, and local level, uh, scaling promising innovations that are happening out in uh, the education reform world, partnering with schools and communities uh, to help uh, improve uh, conditions there, educating the education consumers in innovative ways, uh, and even changing the K-12 paradigm uh, completely, which I think you'll hear some interesting things on that as well. Uh, next to me, uh, John Deasy is uh, the Deputy Director of Education Programs at the Bill and, M Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, and will continue to do that for a short time. Uh, John will soon leave to lead the LA Los Angeles uh, School District uh, in their K-12 uh, programs and so we're excited about that. Uh, Connie Yowell is Director of Progr Education Programs at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur oh, Foundation. I'm just noting to them that you didn't go in order. Oh, and I'm, I'm completely out of order. <laughs> and everyone that's watched public TV knows those names and those initials, John D. and Catherine T. That's right. Foundation, right? Um, and very interesting thinker on this stuff. And I think some of you have heard her in a previous session. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Marty Barrington. Uh, and I learned from Marty that our friends in Altria are not into titles. Uh, last night we had a conversation about that. He does have a very impressive one, and among other things at Altria, among other things at Altria, he oversees their corporate giving uh, and philanthropy efforts. So we're glad to have Marty with us. Laisha Ward is president of the Target Foundation, and we're also very proud to say one of our commissioners on the Commission on No Child Left Behind. So what I want to do is uh, give each of these folks about five minutes. Uh, to tell you a little about, a bit about what they're doing in their particular space, uh, and then we'll have a conversation among us here, and then as soon as we can, bring you guys into the conversation. Uh, we're going to start with John, and this time we will go in order, uh, down the line. So, thank you. so thanks. Uh, about two years ago, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation began to roll out the investments in their new strategy. It was the first nine years of a strategy, and the second... <clears throat> 10 to 15 years of the second wave of the strategy. And the piece that I had the privilege of working through is the effective teaching work at the foundation. 
So what we have been endeavoring in the last uh, two years is how to think about really game-changing catalytic investments that would help public school systems and systems of public charters totally rethink the effective teaching work through rethinking the human capital work. So how do districts fundamentally rethink effective teaching in ways as to how we hire, how we retain, how we terminate, how we promote, how we compensate, how we award tenure if we do, and how we think um, most significantly about who's in front of which youth. And so <clears throat> we worked um, with the foundation and um, Bill and Melinda um, were incredibly uh, thoughtful in allowing us to think somewhat differently about the process of giving. So we began to think through the investments, which were going to be at least a piece of them, very, very large investments um, in very deep, concentrated places to create proof points around this issue. And so we scanned <coughs> the entire United States set of school systems, uh, a little over 35,000 of them, and began to apply a series of filters, um, size, demographic. Obviously, um, we're investing where youth live in circumstances of poverty, and youth have lots of challenges um, in keeping with our mission. And then narrowed the list um, to uh, about 78. Um, so if school systems were extremely large, they, were, um, they fell out because our investment would be so diluted. They were very, very small. They fell out because our investment would be possibly overwhelming around that. And then began to apply another series of filters around state laws and district laws um, that either could jeopardize this work. So for example, if a state had a law which prohibited the linking of an individual student ID and a teacher ID, we obviously couldn't work in that state and all those districts came out. Eventually came to 20 districts um, and went out and said, could we visit? And spent several days of of meeting and trying to understand what it is they really wanted to do and what were the conditions of governance, what were the conditions of organized labor, what were the conditions of leadership, et cetera. And then invited 10 districts um, in a process where we said, we want the most radical, bold, sustainable plan to totally rethink these pieces. And we want to help you create it and we will choose one or two of those. Um, but the process is, you're going to do it as a team. And our uh, team had to include the heads of labor, the heads of governance. So if it was a school board president, superintendent, teacher voice um, had to be on this team. And we actually gave a substantial donation to help you create the plan. Um, and the hitch was everybody's team had to understand what everybody else's plan was doing. And so you repeatedly, over the course of nine months, had to show the progress on your plan very publicly to others. And so this cooperative competition model uh, elicited kind of work we'd never expected. Extraordinarily bold plans. They were remarkable. And at the end of the day, um, our investments were more because we didn't anticipate that these would come forward in. And we made four very large investments in the cities of Pittsburgh and Memphis and Tampa, Hillsborough County, and a set of five CMOs in Los Angeles, and four modest um, investments 
um, and in other cities in the country. And to date, after the first year of work, the, um, the results have been, in my opinion, astonishing. Um, the ability of watching districts say that we will no longer make placements on seniority and we will no longer create compensation based on step and column, um, that teachers' effectiveness is measured by a basket of indicators, including student achievement over time, um, totally rethought teacher evaluation pieces, totally rethinking the concepts of tenure um, and promotion, and um, of course, most dramatically, um, compensation. And they've led to kind of, in my opinion, kind of breakthrough contracts uh, around organized uh, labor. Um, Pittsburgh's a good example, just ratified a contract which is like on any other I have, I've ever seen. Um, a little bit about the work. Um, my comments about, so what did we do um, in thinking through this? I think three things. One was we created a very different kind of space to have conversations which just weren't possible or didn't happen before. Um, and those were conversations around the thorniest and probably the kind of most third rail issues inside of school systems. Um, second of all is everybody's knowledge in that room became everybody else's. And so the idea that just one district off in a corner found a breakthrough and that was nice, everyone learned from everybody else. And so this kind of public sharing of knowledge through this investment I, I think was um, a big piece to this. And then the last piece around this investment was we're gonna go away. These are not infinite investments. They're very finite investments. And we really um, used a good chunk of the opportunity to help the districts think about long-term sustainability. How do you rethink your current budget so that these breakthrough practices both go to scale outside your district and last when our investment goes away? Uh, it's a little bit what's been happening um, in the last um, 18 months. Thank you, John. Hi, uh, I'm Laisha Ward, and I'm uh, representing Target Corporation and the corporate perspective in education philanthropy. Um, I hope that you're all familiar with Target. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who's shopped at a Target store? Can I say okay. Probably more women than men, but um, I say that because I think it's a part of uh, the context in which um, I'll share my comments. Uh, we are a publicly traded company uh, with a variety of stakeholders, and I think that's an important point of differentiation as I talk about corporate engagement uh, in this work. Um, we are a large Fortune 30 company. Uh, we have over 350,000 team members, uh, or employees, we call them team members, who work for us uh, in over 1,740 stores and business units around the United States, uh, 49 states to be precise. And so. Uh, while we are national in scope, we're very, very focused on having local impact. So that context is a very important one. In fact, 19 years ago when I started with our company, I started out in a store as an hourly uh, team member, uh, probably sold something that you're wearing now to you if you've had it for a long time. Um, but, but that context of really engaging at the local level and ensuring that there is a voice of that team member who uh, is on the front lines is a very important piece of how we do the work. Uh, so serving as an advocate, um, certainly for the voice of that team member as well as our guest, which is what we call our customer. 
So from a corporate perspective, uh, I think it's important to think about a few things. And um, one of those is strategic focus. Uh, it's been very important for us over the years to think about uh, where do we want to prioritize our resources? Because we can't be all things to all people. Uh, and, and so having focus is an important part of our success. Really making sure that we differentiate what we're going to do in this space, and we're continuing along that journey in terms of differentiation, so that we're really leveraging our unique assets and strengths as a retailer to help solve um, challenges in the education space and complementing, quite frankly, work that others are doing and not pretending to be an expert in something that we just don't have the expertise in, that we can help amplify or perhaps bring a voice to but not be that expert. We also look to collaborate, connect, and integrate where appropriate. Again, really thinking about ways that we can be more efficient uh, in delivering uh, solutions in the K-12 education space. Uh, and then finally, impact. Where is it that, like in all other parts of our business, we can get results? And so as we talk about uh, results with the nonprofit sector, we want to make sure that we're doing all that we can to make it very clear what um, our expectations are relative to results and that we're partnering, quite frankly, to be able to articulate the goals, um, what those tactics are going to be, how we're going to measure those short-term milestones to show progress along the way, and then ultimately uh, what long-term outcomes are going to be, which requires um, a great deal of collaboration. I'd say uh, it's important briefly to have a step back, to take a step back rather and look at the historical context of our company's giving program to truly understand what rethinking uh, education philanthropy means for us. And uh, our company has had a long history of giving in the community. Uh, and I like to think of the Dayton Hudson family who founded our company as early social entrepreneurs. Uh, before that term uh, was a trend, they were clearly pioneers. Uh, the company was founded in 1946 with the premise that doing good in the community would also ensure that the company did well, and that they weren't mutually exclusive concepts. So we started giving 5% of our income uh, back to the communities in which we did business in 1946, unheard of uh, at the time and quite frankly still unheard of today. I think the average corporate giving program is somewhere around 1%. So the idea that in good times and in bad we continue to provide 5% uh, in addition to the time, talent, and expertise of our team I think is really quite extraordinary. Um, I do think, though, that we've had to, over time, continue to refine the focus of that work, and that's where we've been spending our time rethinking what education philanthropy could and should mean to us. Uh, since 1946 or 1962, if you fast forward um, to Target, because Target was a startup company out of the Dayton Hudson Corporation, uh, and it was the child that did very well and overtook its parent, uh, and subsequently our corporation uh, is now Target Corporation. Uh, but when founded, we also began giving 5% of our income. And I recall when I first moved to the Twin Cities from Chicago uh, for the company 11 years ago, we were uh, giving uh, $1 million a week as a part of that commitment to, to um, 5%. Uh, this, at this point, we're over $3 million a week. And based on the profitability of the company, are doing forecasts uh, for when we think we'll be able to get to $4 million a week and $5 million a week. And so for us, we're also very focused on um, sustainable growth, how is it that we'll be good stewards of, of those resources and do it in a way that manages our, is done in a way that manages the, our capacity uh, to do that work and then for our partners to take in that work in a meaningful way. So for some 60 uh, years, we've given primarily in the areas of arts and social services. Um, over time, added uh, financial resources to support our volunteerism and service endeavors. Uh, and it wasn't really until the last 10 to 12 years that we started funding in education. And so I share that because I think folks think that we've been giving an education much longer than we have. Our first test 
uh, to give an education um, started in 1997 out of um, a collaboration internally to roll out our proprietary uh, credit card. So uh, in our company, we work to ensure that community giving is integrated into every aspect of the business. So when you talk about our corporate mission, mission and vision, we talk about being the best company ever for our guests, for our team members, for our shareholders, and for our communities. So everything has the lens of thinking about how do we articulate uh, and add value to all of those stakeholder groups, and community is built in from the very beginning. And so when we were thinking about that rollout, we were at the table with that business unit, thinking through um, beyond a traditional rewards program, what would add value uh, to that? And we decided on an education test. So in 1997, we um, did what I would call the first year-round uh, cause marketing program, and it allowed our guests to designate up to 1% of the red card spend to a K-12 public or private school of their choice. Um, and I think we all thought that that test, um, while interesting, was a little half-baked and likely wouldn't last, so they let us play. Um, we gave uh, that first year probably to eight, 8 to 16 schools, about $1,500. This year we have over 100,000 of the nation's K-12 through schools um, involved in that program, it's usually somewhere between 75 to 85,000 active um, on an annual basis. And with the September payout, we will have given about $300 million in undesignated resources to the nation's K-12 through schools. So it becomes, particularly in these challenging economic times, an opportunity for uh, schools to uh, come together and convene around uh, ways to leverage these undesignated resources to meet unmet needs uh, in, uh, in a very powerful way. And we think that's added a lot of value over time. Um, fast forward to how we've rethought education philanthropy today, um, learning from that test. Um, we've decided that all of our focus areas cannot be created equally, funded equally, and um, executed equally for us to have the kind of impact we'd like to have. So through a strategic planning process, um, we uh, set up the case for the corporation to make K-12 education the centerpiece of our philanthropic endeavors. And that was supported by the organization. And so uh, starting in 2010, uh, K-12, again, is the centerpiece of our efforts. We look to connect our work in the arts, social services, um, and volunteerism and service to K-12 education for greater impact. Um, and even more so honing in on um, the important academic milestone of reading at grade level by uh, the end of third grade, given the importance of that academic milestone and some of the early work we've done in that space. So again, you'll see us continue to hone in on our focus in that area to put more emphasis in a singular uh, point of view uh, and, and area of focus so that we can have deeper impact and to ultimately put more kids on the path to high school graduation so they're college and career ready. And we'll look to then leverage all of Target's unique assets to ensure that we're driving towards that singular outcome in a meaningful way. Uh, and just briefly then to close, uh, we think we're going to be able to do that by focusing again on our unique strengths, with we, which we believe are being local. Um, Target is local. We're in every community around the country. So we do try hard to listen, um, act, and respond locally. We've uh, been out in the last six to eight months. We've met with um, over 40 local school districts, having conversations with local school districts, really understanding what their unique challenges are. Uh, we have a target teaching circle where on a monthly basis we're talking to over 450 public and private school educators about the challenges that they face in their work. Uh, and so that localization concept is one that we think will add a lot of value. We want to leverage our unique strength um, and passion in design to drive innovation, innovative solutions in K-12 through education. So when you think about what Target does really well, we do design solutions incredibly well. And so we're very focused on making sure that we're able to apply that uh, to the K-12 through education space. 
And then finally, just inspiring parents and caring adults. I mean, we have a consumer base uh, that is significant, and our core guest is a mom with two children. And so we really feel like our voice, our reach, and our approach is one that can become even more laser-focused on ensuring that parents and caring adults are advocates, advocates for their children, uh, and able then to really help create a movement around uh, the education crisis and solutions um, in education. And we've got um, a number of programs that we're testing so that we're able to really leverage uh, the parent as an advocate um, on behalf of their child. Look forward to having a conversation. Thank you, Alicia. Marty? Thanks, Gary. Good morning, everyone. I'm Marty Barrington. I'm with Altry Group. <clears throat> Altry Group's a publicly traded company. We're headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. Um, market cap of about $40 billion. We have about 10,000 employees. We're in the consumer packaged goods businesses. Um, uh, Altry has been, I think, like Target, I think, uh, prided itself on having uh, a long philanthropic uh, history, and, and we continue to have that today. We've gone through a number of corporate changes. Um, but we continue to pride ourselves in that. We've chosen uh, four areas philanthropically that we focus on, two of which are relevant to the conversation this morning. And one of them is, of course, education, and the second is positive youth development. Um, uh, we sell tobacco and wine products, among other products, and so we have issues about underage use, and uh, part of what we've done to address our responsibility in that area is to make sure that we're playing a role in having kids grow up and make the right choices. And they make the right choices in school, and they make the right choices out of school and in other venues. And so our giving programs have been really across that space. And so just for order of magnitude, for example, uh, our annual giving in both those areas, which we connect for these purposes, I think, of the conversation this morning, is somewhere between 25 and $30 million. So while it's not a, a Gates Foundation uh, size, I think in the corporate world, in terms of a corporate giver, again, in Richmond, Virginia, kind of a medium-sized city, um, I think that we're viewed as a fairly significant player in the educational space. Um, um, I would say there are five characteristics to the approach that we've taken. And again, Gary, I just thought I would say this as an example of an approach one might take, not to suggest it's the approach, but the approach that we've taken. And I would pick up on some of the words that you used about focus and impact and making choices, because you have to make choices about your dollars. These are shareholder dollars. You have to make the business case about why you're in this philanthropic space. And increasingly, you have to show that there are results and that there are positive outcomes. Otherwise, you can't make the case why you should give away shareholder money or why you give it here as opposed to there. So here are the choices that we've made, just as an exemplar. One is um, we've chosen to focus for now on the southeastern United States, and in particular in Richmond, Virginia. We know that the education problem is a big one. It's national. We have huge achievement gaps. But we partnered with someone wise who told us, start where you are. Make a difference where you are. And we're in Richmond, Virginia. And so we have other locations throughout uh, the country. But really, our presence is in, the, is in the southeastern United States. The good news is, is we have assets there. We have our corporate headquarters there. We have thousands of employees. We have good relationships in the po political community and the cultural community. We're blessed with great universities, Virginia Commonwealth University, University of Richmond, the University of Virginia, one of the greatest public institutions in the country, is 60 miles up the road. There's all these assets that we can leverage if we want to make a difference, and that's one, one choice we've made. Another choice we've made is if you take the pipeline of children moving through the, our educational system, while we do have supports along the pipeline, including secondary education and post-secondary education, 
we really have focused in on middle school. We think the research shows that, that that's a really a crucial time in children's lives. It's when uh, pre-adolescents, adolescents start to make the choices that move them down paths. This is especially true with respect to positive youth development where kids are making lifestyle choices. And we believe, you know, if you can improve those choices, you will improve educational outcomes. Educational outcomes help improve those choices, so we're working there. A third choice we've made is we've heavied up on so-called STEM disciplines, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, because we're a manufacturing and marketing company, and that's on strategy for us. This is another important thing, I think, for corporations and, and philanthropy. I guess there was a time when people sort of gave away money because they thought it was the right thing to do or make people feel good. Almost everyone I know who's working in this space now gives money in a focused and a targeted kind of way because it's on their business strategy. It makes the business case for why you should support this. And for us, those disciplines support that. We need engineers, we need finance people, we need mathematicians. I'd say the fourth choice that we've made, and if there's one thing I guess I would ask you to take away from our story, it's probably this. The, the things that we support are almost always intended to strengthen the system. We try to avoid the temptation to support this initiative or that initiative or this small cohort because they're all worthy and they all deserve support. But like most big businesses, we run off of business systems and we believe outcomes result from superior systems. So I'll give you an example or two in a moment, but we're interested in improving the educational systems around leadership, around governance, around school boards, around superintendents, around teacher preparedness, because that's the box within which our children move through the system, and we believe that's a sustainable approach to making a difference as opposed to this program or that program. And then the last, and it's a word I, I heard you use also, Leisha, is connectedness. You know, the only thing that's better than having one great system that works is connecting it to a bunch of other systems that work. And so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how can the system that we're trying to influence be connected to other systems. I've mentioned the Universities of Virginia, it's a great example. You go up the road to the University of Virginia, they have a crackerjack um, school of education, graduate school of education called Curry. They have one of the best business schools in the country called the Darden School. Darden and Curry work together with us on leadership development programs for educators. It's a way of connecting systems together. Um, we work together on leadership development programs for the Richmond Public Schools. In Richmond, we have an urban public school system. It has about 24,000 kids, about 45 different school locations, and it has all the characteristics of many urban schools. It has a lot of challenges. Um, we are trying to put our muscle against the Richmond Public School to see if we can influence those outcomes as well there. So uh, for us, it's about those five choices. We're learning as we go. Um, you have to adapt, um, but I think uh, uh, we believe we're on the right path, particularly in the southeastern United States. Great, thank you, Marty. Connie. I am Connie. I have two small children and I visit Target on a weekly basis. <laughs> Thank you. It's about the Legos. <laughs> um, I'm at the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, and I would say I think we take probably a slightly different approach when it comes to education. Um, so I think at, in terms of the role of philanthropy, and I'm not, we, we may all agree on this. I think philanthropy, uh, let me start off by saying I think philanthropy has a different role to play than perhaps government and or business, which is to say that I think often public dollars and business dollars are often caught in having to deal with short-term issues 
and immediate issues, and philanthropy has the privilege of being able to look at the long term. Um, and I would say that education, uh, because of the rapid changes that are happening due to technology and the changes that are being ushered in by digital media, is actually at a time, we're at an inflection point, and perhaps at a time of uh, radical change, being ushered in as radical as when the printing press was brought in. And so I would say that we're actually at a time in education where we could be thinking about radical, radical change. Um, and so in, in, when you talk about innovation, you can be talking about a kind of innovation that is about efficiency, um, which could be on the one hand making the horse run faster, or we could be talking about a kind of innovation which is about moving into an entirely new system or an entirely new way of thinking about something. And so there's probably no other sector that is better suited to bringing in new paradigms, to thinking about new conceptual frameworks and new conceptual ways of thinking about things than is philanthropy, and I often think that that is the job of philanthropy. And so part of the work that we have been thinking about at MacArthur and thinking about in terms of education is how do we want to think about education in the 21st century? How do we want to get out of the box that has currently defined education for the last 100 to 150 years? We know that the classroom hasn't changed in the last 100 years. How do we begin to think about what learning should look like in the 21st century? Um, and not tweak at the edges. And so um, how did we get to this place? Um, for mm, MacArthur's been around for 30 years, and so for 30 years we have been heavily invested in education. Um, prior to 2004, we had probably a $50 million. We'd put over $40 million into Chicago education, which is where we're located. We'd invested, uh, we had a $40 million initiative in district school reform. Um, had all of the principles of a lot of the things that we're talking about today. We were invested in several districts, doing deep, deep district work. Um, after several years of very hard work, um, watching 11 superintendents turn over in three districts and sort of seeing the needle on school improvement move, probably not at all, um, we decided to take a step back. And we decided that instead of working in schools and working on district reform, we'd spend some time with the kids. Um, we'd, we'd get a, we wanted to have a sense of what they were doing outside of school. And we wanted to sort of look over the horizon and get a sense of what learning might look like in the future and what they were doing with digital media. And we learned very quickly that it wasn't about the future, it was about now. And we learned pretty quickly that digitally savvy kids were doing some extraordinary things with digital media in terms of learning. And we learned very quickly that learning happens, as we all know, it happens everywhere. And that perhaps we should be really thinking about not just education as it's defined in a school building, but that we should be thinking about learning as it happens everywhere and beginning to think about how we can support that learning more robustly. Um, and so we started an initiative in 2006 called the Digital Media and Learning Initiative. We've put probably $80 million into it and we'll continue to fund that. Um, and so I just want to say in some quick bullet points some of the things we've learned from the kids, not that the kids should be leading us, but that we as adults, myself in particular, still look at the digital media as tools and sort of think of them as foreign objects as opposed to something that just helps us learn and is a part of our daily lives, which is what, as I look at my 10-year-old who just runs through the day with using the digital media as he needs it, um, somebody as folks that we can learn um, more easily from. So a couple of shifts that we've made as we think about learning and then how it has affected our grant making. 
So one is, as I've mentioned, we've made a huge shift from thinking about education. We don't really talk about education in our grant making so much. We really focus on learning and want to understand and think about how to support learning more robustly. Secondly, we've really shifted from thinking about the consumption of information, which I think is how we've defined education in traditional schools, to thinking about participation and what it means to support kids' participation in schools and their production, their making and doing of things and what that looks like. I really think that instead of innovating around outcomes, um, which is where I think a lot of the work is, that we need to be innovating around kids' engagement and that engagement is around participation. Third, we've really shifted from thinking about what it looks like for kids to be in siloed institutions. What the kids have taught us is that they live in a networked world. And so learning happens across networked, we think that the delivery of learning is gonna happen across network institutions and networked communities as opposed to through siloed institutions. And so how do we begin to support that networked configuration? And I talked a lot about that yesterday in a presentation. And so what has that meant for um, our funding and what have we begun to look at, just very quickly? Um, one of the things that I think is incredibly important for philanthropy to support is research. I think over the last 10 years, we've really shifted both at the federal level and in general, we fund a lot of evaluation. And while evaluation is important, um, and I think that we have this rhetoric in education around knowing what works, if you fund only evaluations and outcomes, then you only know what works within a particular paradigm and what you already have put implemented. You have to fund research in order to begin to understand new conceptual frameworks. So we fund ethnographies, we fund conceptual models, we fund basic research. It's the only way we're gonna break out of our box and begin to think about a new paradigm and new ways of thinking. So I can't encourage philanthropy enough to go back to, begin to funding broader research. It's absolutely critical. We don't have all the answers particularly in this new world of digital media. And I just don't think there's enough funding in the field of research. Um, secondly, we're really, really beginning to rethink um, what we're calling learning environments. We've, all, we've typically defined learning environments in terms of a teacher's interaction with a student with resources, commonly curriculum. But what we're learning, and we talk about curriculum, we want kids to memorize and to understand content. And so we really think about content, content, content. But what we're learning from the kids is content is just the context in which they produce and create. And so it's the medium by which they go about pursuing their interest in creating things. And so it's a huge shift in how you think about what a learning environment is. And so when they're in their video games or when they're using mobile phones or when they're making hip hop music, that's when the content matters. And so they may be, they may be pursuing something of interest but it could be a book about, for us, it could be a book, it could be a literature book, it could be what all the things that we care about becomes the context for which they're creating. That makes a very different learning environment. So they're not sitting down to memorize a book or content. They're instead using that content to solve a problem. I don't know if that makes sense, but that is how, that's the learning environment that actually engages them. So if you study engagement, and if you innovate around engagement, you shift the meaning of content in the learning environment. It's been a huge shift for us and it means that kids then become much more self-directed and are engaged for hours around the content, but in a very different way. Third thing is that we are completely rethinking what institutional innovation looks like. So our museums, our libraries, our schools that we've been funding look incredibly different if learning environments look different and if they're networked. 
And so we're building out learning networks in both Chicago and in New York to rethink how institutions come together. So if education, if the school is not responsible for everything, but is instead networked with libraries and museums and after school programs around what, whole, what lifelong learning looks like for kids, it's an entirely different experience for what the teacher's role is and for what the student's role is. And so if in a networked environment, learning looks very different. And so that's part of the work that we're doing. And I'll okay. stop there. Great. Thanks, Connie. Um, well, we really want to pull you guys into the conversation. So uh, please think about questions. We'll have <laughs> microphones going around uh, in just a second. And I, I'll just ask a question or two uh, to, to get us started. It's really interesting when you talk about, again, playing to your strengths. And you all have sort of different ways of getting at this, different strengths. Uh, and in, in this era that we're in of more data, more light, more transparency than, than we've had before, it seems like there ought to be some opportunities to coordinate those efforts mm -hmm. as you guys play to your different strengths and do different things, have those things tie together. So I'm just curious what you think uh, is happening uh, along those lines or what needs to happen. I guess I'll ask that question two ways. Mm -hmm. In terms of foundations Or maybe a third way. <laughs> in terms of foundations partnering? Yeah, partnering and tying, tying these things together. We sort of have a similar mm -hmm. vision going a similar direction. We have this sort of budding idea about an education reform direction mm -hmm. and how it fits together. We have real transparency and light about student achievement and performance and, and mm -hmm. the results we're getting. Okay. Where does that create opportunities for us? I, I'll be happy to jump in. Okay. Um, so we have been working closely with, as an example, with Hewlett, Gates, um, and the Lumina Foundation, as well as the Kellogg Foundation. So our work is very much, we believe that innovation, that education tends to be a closed system and it's very hard to do innovation inside a closed system. Um, and it's also very hard innovation. Um, if you look in the business sector, eight out of 10 innovations are intent, you expect eight out of 10 innovations to fail. And the mantra in, in um, innovation is fail fast, fail cheaply, and fail often. And the idea is to learn from that. And the last thing you want to do in education is to fail with other people's children. I mean, and education is a high stakes environment. So if we're, if we're a foundation that's willing to take high risks mm -hmm. and we're, we're setting up test beds that are outside of school um, and where kids are volunteering and really actively engaged in the test beds um, and it's a low risk environment, then the ideal opportunity then is to move through those innovations and then partner with other foundations who are willing to then take the successes, the two or three successes, and move those into the school environment. And so that's our partnerships with Gates, for example. We've been working with Karina mm -hmm. um, to begin to say, we've got, we've got three or four things now that have really tested out exceptionally well. Yeah. Can you think about scaling them in your school, in the works, in the works in the, that you're doing in school? And so we've got several partnerships now that are working across schools Great. to see one how that works. One of the things I'd add, I think the Race for the Top application has convened conversations across sectors in a manner that has been really catalytic. And it's really allowed us often in communities around the country to better understand how varying sectors are attacking the issue. And there's been more transparency around what the impact of some of that work has been and where perhaps it could be strengthened by making some of the work, quite frankly, go away if it's not having the results that uh, perhaps were intended or how to bring the work together in a more um, strategic manner. But the difficult part becomes that we all think what we do is fantastic, right? And we all have 
uh, a need to uh, ensure that we are showing our key stakeholders that we have invested those resources wisely and that we're you know, making a return on the investment. So getting all of us to sort of release certain aspects of the work for the greater good is difficult. And so I think, again, the Race for the Top application process has really helped open up a really difficult, um, healthy tension, I like to call it, that if we continue to wrestle with it, will ultimately, I think, drive great change. But it's clear that many of us don't really know what the other is doing uh, nor is there sort of a hub that will continue the dialogue coming out of Race for the Top applications to drive that work forward and help coordinate the work. And even more so, in my opinion, is going to be the next wave of federal investment yeah. in I-3, yeah, which is great. the innovation fund Funds. grants when they come out, um, and really thinking about how we do actually more than collaborate, but do kind of multiple catalytic roles across partnered um, institutions and foundations. It's going to be a huge opportunity in the very near future. Okay, thank you. Can I ask one in the back here? If you just wait one second for, for the microphone to get to you. Uh, and stand up and uh, please introduce yourself. My name is Randy Antic. Time and again when I attend these sessions and watch people like yourself on the stage, uh, I'm struck that there is no uh, leadership from the university system, whether it be the mm -hmm. university presidents or the schools of education. Can you tell us why they're not on the stage or in the audience, and what should their role be, and what do you need to do to bring them in part of the system? I don't know why they're not yeah. on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't give away God so much. We didn't pick the panel. <laughs> So I think that this is, um, this is a really important question. Um, and it's one where I'm going to speak just for, for our work in our space. And um, the reaching out process and understanding that there can be partnerships there um, have, have provided kind of rich opportunity on the innovation side. Um, and the notion um, that we can be a partner um, about a piece of work without fundamentally changing either their mission or our mission is really the delicate dance um, that has occurred. I would say that in my time, I've seen a lot of doors opened and a kind of rich set of partnerships about mutual interest. It takes time, however, to develop that mutual interest um, around that. I don't think the absence here is indicative that it isn't either happening or desirous to happen. But I do think mission is a big issue um, that can uh, sometimes um, bound the opportunities and the investments. I, I would just say that the, I do think the question is an excellent one. And we have lots of partners, I think, that we could put in the queue to come and talk next time about the topic. And I think when we work with uh, universities, it, very receptive, it's about pipeline development. So when we think yeah. about that path of graduation and this need for connectiveness across the path, you know, zero, to career and co college ready, they've been at the table and willing to engage because at the end of the day, again, from a business perspective, you're developing a pipeline, right? So the product is graduating from high school, college, and career ready. They need a pipeline of students who, quite frankly, can move into those institutions and ultimately graduate. And so uh, we've seen receptivity. Uh, it's, it's not perfect, but in a number of our partnerships, they've certainly been at the table. Okay. Uh, yes, ma'am, right here in the front. Good morning, I'm Marjorie Minicosi, and I admire all the work that you're doing. Uh, my question is for John Deasy. I wonder how you actually channel the monies 
to the, is it the school district? Is it to an individual teacher? What criteria do you use? Is it to a district? Does the district then have a committee of teachers who then select from applications of teachers? Being an educator, I'm interested. Thank you. So in this piece of the work we've done, um, and there is a, obviously a vast, I didn't attempt to talk about the Gates Foundation writ large, global health, global development. I spoke about this piece around teacher effectiveness. Um, the way that we've chosen to do this is that it is funding the work of the proposal. So we were very, uh, we chose to be very careful in that. Um, so if districts in their proposal wanted to fundamentally rethink how they compensate, which would be an area that I think would be direct to your question. So they want to, for example, um, rethink that master's degrees um, are no longer going to be part of compensation that is based on an evaluation system where in some cases 40% um, would be value-added, um, another percentage would be on the peer and administrator's review of the teacher's performance. We don't fund the change in salary um, because that's really the district's responsibility. We would fund the development of a new and robust teacher valuation system. We would fund because that would be sustainable. We would fund the development of the data systems so that districts could be transparent about growth over time. Uh, we have funded the development of teacher academies. Um, so this whole idea that the, the, the real need to train and support um, is if not more important than the need to have a robust evaluation around that. So when we learn what we're struggling with, what are we gonna do about that? We catalyze that, and that actually is a good example of doing that side by side with the university um, and colleges. Um, the decisions were made um, completely by the district. Our insistence was the framework that it had to be guided um, by legitimate teacher voice, and that it had the requirement of having the key stakeholders at the table. So teacher voice, um, teacher representative voice, which is labor, governance, which would be boards of education, um, and the uh, leadership of the district itself in terms of the superintendent. And why we ask that is that this needs to stay deep inside the drinking water, um, however bold they want to do that, long after we step away from our catalytic role. Um, so decisions about where that went was actually with, so we funded their plan, they made those internal decisions. So we did not give individual dollars to individual teachers or individual schools. Thank you. Okay. I think I saw one right back here, and then, then uh, you're next. Good morning, I'm Tony Kane. I spent the first 30 years of my career in the commercial sector and have recently founded a not-for-profit in the education space. In the commercial sector, there are natural market forces to address efficient allocation of capital. The four of you there and many across the country are allocating uh, high quantities of capital. In the not-for-profit space, there seems to be much redundancy and a potential inefficiency for allocation of capital. Is there, are there any organizations, is there a need to address um, redundancy and, uh, speaking of research, uh, a study on the efficient allocation of capital uh, for better returns in the education space. Yeah, I think um, not only is your question or statement very, very important, um, it actually guided the new set of investments pretty deeply. So what's the upside of that is that we're being very mindful about that. 
what's the downside of that? People are saying, wait a minute, that's not how you used to give. We would just give us the money like you used to do that. <laughs> what's with the social return on investment? What's with the dashboards? What's with the scorecards? What's with the quarterly reviews? What's with the understanding around the investment? And that has caused, to be honest, let's talk about the, that actually has caused um, a new round of tension um, between um, the two partners in this. So I think we should, I just want to call that out. I also would call out the work of Marguerite Rosa, um, who is doing some deep thinking around this issue quite specifically inside of public school budgets and public school spaces. And um, her thinking about how investments are being made specifically around redundancies and around systems that are continually invested for low and no results um, are worth being called out. And I would also suggest that how we're all organized to do the work needs to shift as well. So um, mm. our team, for instance, while we've looked at evaluation and operational efficiency over the years, was done in a more ad hoc manner. And so we have a team that is very focused exclusively on evaluation, research, metrics, what we are able to do, what our partners are able to do, but they're also simultaneously focused on operational efficiencies. You know, as we scale, how do we do the work differently than we've done before? How do our partners internally and externally need to do the work differently? And then how do we leverage our business expertise and those of other experts in the field to bring that information to bear in a way that creates a new center of excellence around um, our research measurement and operational efficiencies so that our business model for giving is operating in the 21st century way that the rest of our business is scaling to be successful. So if the product on the shelf is more kids graduating from high school, college, and career ready, then we're taking an approach that ensures that we're going to be able to deliver the kind of results with the right systems that surround that work for not only us, but hopefully to the extent that it can be achieved for those, our partners as well. The flip of that question is that there's actually not enough venture capital money in the education market for innovation. And so how can we start to leverage and bring in more venture capital money into new innovations to create a different kind of market for education? And that's also what we're working on. I have a very concrete and optimistic example, though. Your observation is spot on. We have a partner that we worked with, and we spent a weekend with them on something. And during the course of that, they learned about our corporate restructuring techniques and, and taking synergies where they're available, et cetera. They had recently merged. They had two redundant back office operations, and they came to us. And what they wanted from us was not money, although they always wanted money, of course. What they wanted was expertise about how we did it. How did we consolidate? How did we get the synergy? How were we able to shift the cost to revenue in our model and their model to investment? And we had a terrific partnership with them about using some of the business skills that we're, you're familiar with, I'm sure, to transfer to that. Perfectly applicable as not-for-profits consolidate and they build scale. Wow, great. Uh, we have one up here. Thank you. Um, my name is Jessica Fullerton. Um, I agree with you on uh, the digital media. I have a six-year-old grandson whose absolute favorite toy is the iPad. <laughs> and he uses it for hours every day to research dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And now he's moved on to er early mammals and his reading skills are unbelievable because of the iPad. Mm -hmm. um, my husband and I have a small family foundation and we helped to fund a charter school in Richmond, California. Last year, only one out of 700 high school graduates had the courses necessary just to apply to college. Um, I think 55% of um, students in California have graduated from high school. Having said that, I'd like to know 
why the focus is always on academic high school graduation leading to college, which of course is the ideal, but what happens to the 45% of students who are labeled high school dropouts? Why don't we have the, the vocational schools and the apprenticeship programs for these kids who are not academically inclined so that they can be a success at an early age? I mean, I, I want to just offer a personal opinion. They're all academically inclined. Um, so I don't think that there's youth who are academically inclined to be successful in post-secondary and youth who are not. I just firmly believe that and, and would want to have to state my own philosophy on that piece. And I think the issue is um, a travesty of justice that we um, uh, are not um, calling an educational 911 when we take a look at those data um, that you point out very accurately so. So getting to and through post-secondary is just simply, um, uh, quite frankly, an issue of both kind of social justice and economic viability of this country. Um, so there's a pretty um, uh, alarming report that's been uh, recently uh, posted around the achievement gap and the translation of that achievement gap into a permanent national recession and understanding the effect of not closing that achievement gap. Um, so the investment for us, and we can just use California as a good example because it's very kind of clear about this A through G requirement and, and graduating college and workforce ready because we would believe that they would be the same, um, is that um, all youth um, absolutely deserve that basic right um, and Providing them the choice for career or college is the issue, not deciding that some can be college ready and some can't be college ready early on in the pipeline. So it's, a, it's the issue of the expectation of the system that all are capable of that. Um, and quite frankly, fundamentally disturbing the system so that it realizes that issue that you pointed out so well that is just wrong. Um, and that the investment is really about every youth, the, the belief system. Can I say amen? Is that appropriate and okay? <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, I, I think that's right, but it, it also means that we have to jump into the system to understand what it is about engagement and what it is about learning that we're losing those kids so young. And so there's a huge third and fourth grade slump and drop-off point where we end up losing kids' interests and they learn that they're not learners because the system teaches them that they're not learners very young. And so that's part of why we need to start innovating around engagement and around learning um, immediately. And that's part of what the, what the academic 101 call or 911 call is that you're referring to, is that it's not that we have to start hitting them harder in terms of making them work harder, it's that we have to completely rethink what the learning environment is that we're engaging those kids in. And so if you're, what we're seeing from the kids is that even the kids who are not doing well in school are learning extraordinarily well outside of school because they've got engaging tools and engaging environments and because they're, they're with their peers who are also learning in extraordinary ways. And so those are the kinds of innovations that we have to start bringing into the school because even the, even the in all of the studies that we've been doing outside of school, we see kids who are, who are tested at fifth grade levels for reading who are in high school being able to read at college level outside of school in different kinds of learning environments. And so we're misunderstanding interest and engagement for capacity. 
in a lot of different ways. And so part of what we're finding from our research is that if there are ways in which we can start actually creating learning environments for kids that are engaging for them, because we've decontext, we've created context for learning in schools in which there's no context for the information that we're giving them that's it's meaningless for them. So that we're asking them to memorize and to do drill and skill kinds of learning in ways that doesn't have meaning for the kids and doesn't engage them. So your grandson is engaged with the dinosaurs because it's, it's an engaging kind of learning experience for him and it is meaning for him. And so that's the kind of learning experience we have to start engaging our kids in, in schools in which we're currently not. Because we're so worried about accountability and we're worried, we have other concerns related to accountability and measurements that are detracting from the learning experience of our kids. And so that's part of what I think we have to start innovating on inside the schools. And that's and a I, very compelling, oh, go ahead. I would just also argue that for students and for adults, we have to all really fundamentally believe something that you hit on, which is that all children in America deserve to have a quality education regardless of race or class. I mean, do we all truly fundamentally believe that? Uh, and, and do we also fundamentally believe that they all have the right to graduate from high school ready for college and a career? I mean, because at the end of the goal, that's what you aspire to for your own children. So shouldn't we aspire to that for all children? And, and at the end of the day, I think we have to believe that all kids can learn. I am not sold that we really believe that all children regardless of race or class, can learn. That is not always the way that we have been taught. You don't need to be sold. The behaviors are quite clear that we don't. It's, the systems do not believe that. But I, we believe, so, target, this is, this is I'm, now I'm personal. No, 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 I'm saying. We believe, we believe that all children can learn. And I think Absolutely. if you fundamentally believe that all children can learn, you operate differently. And it creates a different mm -hmm. set of actions and expectations that drives the work, which says they should be ready for college and career, because that's what you expect for your own kid. Yeah. And so we want that to be something that isn't for a quarter of the kids or half of the kids, yeah. it's for every child Absolutely. in America. And I think one of the big challenges for us is to create this movement that personalizes the work and creates a set of beliefs around it, because at the end of the day, it's sort of those people's kids, mm -hmm. not your own kids. Mm -hmm. And I often remind people while I sit in this role with some fancy random title, um, you know, I am still the first in my family to graduate from college. Still the first. So us is them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that will fundamentally change the way we do what we do. I mean, you look at graduation rates, nearly one in three kids today aren't graduating from high school. Nearly half of African-American and Hispanic kids aren't graduating. That is a crisis. Mm -hmm. And when there truly is a crisis in America, think about the gulf. If we put the same attention we're putting right now in the Gulf into education, I think we drive the kind of change that will impact this country in a very, very meaningful way. Can moderators say amen? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we have uh, one more question, and then we have to. Hi, uh, my name's Patty Alper. I'm involved with the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Um, I'm going to give you an example and ask a question. Um, I've had the opportunity to be a mentor in um, inner city schools in the Washington area, D.C. Uh, for the last about 10 years. Um, I agree with Connie about the importance of relevancy. Um, one of the students I work with, just to give you an example, loved mixing music mm -hmm. and with the um, coaching and mentorship, he launched a DJ business. He had to write a 28-page business plan and over the course of three years in high school made over $100,000 supported his mother, as he still does to this day. Um, so I guess my question is, 
do you all um, deal with or support mentorship um, in your programs? And I guess I'm, I'm also, I care deeply about the fact that um, there would be ongoing use and relevancy of what they're learning. The short answer is yes. At least in our work, we strongly support that. But it's a little bit more than that. And we're coming to find the true power of healthy mentors amongst adults. Um, teachers learning the science and craft of teaching um, requires the same kind of deep mentorship as the adult youth experience that you do. I mean, obviously, I know about it because you were very good in the last district I worked in. Um, so we strongly support that. But we actually believe that that's for all people in the system. Okay, well, John, Leisha, Martin, Connie, and all of you, thank you. And uh, the rest of your day.